So this morning, I want to start with a question. If someone unfamiliar with Christianity were to ask you, who is Jesus, how would you answer him? How would you articulate in just a sentence or two what Christians believe about Jesus Christ? As you imagine your answer, I'm not looking for biographical information, you know, like Jesus was a Middle Eastern carpenter who lived in the first century and who died on the cross. That's true, but it's a bit tangential to the question, which is not quantitative, but qualitative. I'm not asking who Jesus was, I'm asking who he is. What's his significance, his role in human history? Who is Jesus really? This is the penetrating question that Jesus poses to his disciples in Matthew 16, and as we'll see, the answer to this question changes everything. But as we read this story from Matthew's Gospel, I encourage you to let it read you too. I invite you to hear Jesus asking, who do you say that I am? Because this is where the Christian life begins and ends. So turn with me to Matthew 16, starting in verse 13. Jesus has just entered the region of Caesarea Philippi, which is a good 150 miles north of Jerusalem. It's an out-of-the-way place, beyond the surveillance of the Jewish leaders. And there, Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say the Son of Man is? Verse 14, and they answered him, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. If you're unfamiliar with some of these names, suffice it to say that Jesus' ministry was popular and impressive enough that people knew he was somebody special. John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, these are some of Israel's most prominent and important prophets. They were also among the prophets who brought the hardest and most challenging message to God's people. John the Baptist preached repentance and got his head cut off for criticizing King Herod. Elijah's prophecy against Israel's corrupt king, Ahab, resulted in a three-year drought and eventually in the death of the prophets of Baal. So these were intense people. And more pointedly, these prophets were associated with Jewish expectation regarding the coming of God's kingdom. Listen to the last words of the Old Testament. It says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So the people who've encountered Jesus know that he's important, that he'll have a significant role in world history. And isn't it amazing to think that 2,000 years later, this really hasn't changed? Most people who've heard Jesus' teachings or who've read the New Testament or who've had any kind of personal experience with him would say, Jesus is an important person. This is true of religious and non-religious people. Christians, Muslims, atheists, agnostics, people of all stripes usually describe Jesus in overwhelmingly positive terms. Now, when you ask those same people about the church, they might have less positive things to say, but hold that thought because we're gonna come back to it. So the people generally recognize Jesus as somebody important, but Jesus isn't as concerned with them at this point as he is with the men he has specifically called to follow him. The crowds can have their theories, but Jesus turns now to his disciples in verse 15, and he says, 
but who do you say that I am? And this is where it starts to get personal. Jesus' question here is something of a confrontation. In being asked straight on like this, the disciples now have to do the work of self-examination. They have to give an account to their leader for what they believe. And the stakes are high because if they profess Jesus as the Christ, as not just a prophet, but as the prophet, the one who would come after Elijah to usher in God's kingdom, they knew they'd be putting themselves at great risk. In the first century, you didn't just go around saying, the Messiah's here, because to do that was to risk political ruin or possibly even martyrdom. It was to say there's a new king in town who's going to overthrow the others. This helps us understand then the courage in Peter's response. Knowing the weight of his words, knowing the cost, he says in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. This bold profession of faith, this recognition of Jesus' true identity, this is what distinguishes the disciples from the people. And it precipitates the first mention of the church in Matthew's gospel. Here's what that means for us. What makes the church the church is not just our general association with Jesus. It's not our agreement with most people that he was a great moral teacher or an inspiring figure in history. It's not even our commitment to follow his teachings. What makes the church the church is our belief that Jesus is the Christ. He's not one spiritual leader among many good options. He's the one. This is what Peter was saying when he called Jesus the Christ. It's a word that has become so closely associated with him that we often just assume it's his last name, Jesus Christ. But Christ is not a name, it's a title. The Christ is the king. It means anointed one, sometimes translated Messiah. The Christ is the one specially chosen by God to establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. Even the second phrase Peter uses, the son of the living God, that was a very clear reference to Jesus' kingship. Not necessarily his divinity, although the church would later come to see that meaning here as well. But in the Old Testament scriptures, Israel's king was referred to as God's son. Now maybe you find that kind of information interesting. You like to know the details of Israel's history and the meaning of these Greek words. Maybe you like geeking out with me about the various references to kingship in this passage. Or maybe you think, well, look, I agree with you what what you're saying about Jesus, but you don't need to give me all that fine print. And if that's you, thank you for listening so politely while I just gave you all that fine print. It's over now. And either way, The punchline of this text is the same for all of us. Jesus is king. And that means we have a decision to make. And the decision is this. Do we believe it? Not just do we agree with the information, but are we willing and ready to give him our allegiance? The question of who Jesus is, it might not have the same stakes for us as it did for first century Jews, but it does have implications for our lives. If Jesus is the Christ, if he's the king, then that means we don't get to pick and choose which of his teachings to obey. If Jesus is the king, 
then Christianity is not a buffet table from which we can select the more palatable aspects of allegiance that we'd like to incorporate into our personal spiritual lives. If Jesus is the king, then we need to take seriously what he said about our life together and about our money and our bodies and the poor and our pride. Unfortunately, we're not very good at doing this. Even in the church, we are often quite selective in our allegiance to Jesus. We follow him very closely in the matters that we feel good about or in the ways that our cultural values have already primed us to care about, but then we consciously or subconsciously censor the rest. And the result, at least in this country, is too many churches that fit neatly in the cultural categories of left and right. We're all trying to follow Jesus, but we're all doing a little, a little bit selectively, just in different ways. And we're really good at seeing the blind spots of the other, aren't we? But Jesus' call to his whole church is the same. Regardless of our political leanings or our cultural predispositions or our ideological bent, we are called to a new primary allegiance to him. Now, this is really hard to do, right? In part because it means we won't fit comfortably in those former communities of belonging. Primary allegiance to Jesus means becoming, in some ways, politically and ideologically homeless. This is both the beauty and the power of the church because we're not called to follow Jesus on our own as a bunch of isolated, displaced individuals. We're called to follow Jesus together. And when we follow Jesus together, holistically and not just selectively, then we become not just a community unto ourselves, but we also become a prophetic witness to the world. At its best, the church is evidence that there is a new king in town whose kingdom is not of this world, but that has come into this world for its healing and transformation. That's the church. It's the people who profess Christ as king, not Donald Trump or Joe Biden or anyone else we might be tempted to give our primary allegiance to. Now let's talk a little bit more about the church because Let's be honest, we're not always at our best, are we? We don't live into this prophetic calling very well, or at least as well as we should. But I think there's some encouragement for us here in Jesus' words, so let's press in. After Peter's brave confession of faith, Jesus says to him in verse 17, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's a lot here, and we're not going to get to all of it. But here are a few things that preached to me this week, beginning with this. The church is not made up of people who get everything right. It's made up of people who get one thing right. Jesus is the Christ. Brothers and sisters, our strength lies in the fact that we are not its source. We are not the hope of the world. He is. We are not the Christ. He is. I had a hard week this week. 
it was just a confluence of things that created kind of a perfect storm of stress. And I finally cracked early in the week. And it wasn't the kind of crack that happens one day when you just have a good cry and then you kind of get on with things. It was like going through every day in a perpetually cracked state. Have you ever experienced that? Well, my family will tell you it's not very fun to be around people in that state. This week, whatever veneer of serenity I might usually be able to hide behind was gone, and I was face to face with kind of the worst version of myself. It was a little embarrassing, to be honest, and it was very humbling. And finally, on Thursday, during a time of prayer, I had this sense that Jesus was saying to me, Hannah, this version of yourself that you're so ashamed of, this is the version of you that I've loved all along. We're really good at dressing ourselves up, even before God. But he sees through all of that to the frail, fearful creatures that we truly are. Brothers and sisters, we are not the Christ. And he isn't asking us to be. When you step foot into this building, when you approach this table, when you go out into the world to live as Christ's witness, Jesus doesn't say to you, who do you think you are? He says, who do you think I am? It's our relation to him that defines us. This is the starting place for Jesus' words about the church. We begin and end with the recognition, as Paul put it in 2 Corinthians, that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And in this light, we can begin to understand how the gates of hell will not prevail against the church because we are God's project. Jesus said to Peter, through you, I will build my church. Peter is the rock, but Jesus is the builder. Peter has a part to play, and we all do, but there's some comfort in the fact that whatever work God gives us to do, our limitations won't limit God's ability to achieve his purpose for us. This should be both empowering and humbling. It's humbling because it means so much of what God is doing through the church, he is doing in spite of us. And this is not to say that we're any worse than the church has been at any point in history. God's people have always followed him imperfectly. And at times, they have failed horribly. This was true of Israel, and it's true of the new Israel that we see being born right here in Matthew 16. Isaiah 51 called Abraham the rock of Israel, the father of a nation. In Matthew 16, Jesus calls Peter the rock of the church, the father, in a sense, of this new family that God is forming among those who follow Jesus as Lord. And right after Peter's moment of glory here, of his bold profession, his renaming as a special leader in church history, in the very next verses, Peter tries to talk Jesus out of the cross, and Jesus rebukes him. Since you don't have it in front of you, I'll read it. This is verse 21 of Matthew 16. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
I think Matthew strategically paired these two exchanges between Jesus and Peter to make a point. In the first exchange, he calls Peter the rock. And in the second, he calls him a stumbling block. As a leader in the church, this is very humbling for me to read and reflect on. It's humbling to be reminded that nobody, not even our most esteemed leaders, are immune to getting it badly wrong. That we need to be listening very closely to our Lord, and we need to be ready to repent when he calls us out, because he will. But it's also humbling to realize that even in his abject failure to align with Jesus, Peter was not rejected. He was rebuked, he was corrected, and he was still used powerfully to build up Christ's church. Peter, the one who tried to talk Jesus out of the cross, would go on, as church history tells us, to be crucified as well. But he would insist that he was unworthy even to die in the same manner as his Lord. So he was crucified upside down. It's humbling what God can and will make of us, how he will use us in our imperfections to accomplish his good work in the world. Now in closing, let's turn to how Jesus' message about the church is also empowering. It's his project, he's the architect and the builder, but he has given us a role to play. So picking it up at the end of verse 18. On this rock I will build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of death will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is mysterious language, and again, we could Greek out about this. But let me just give you a very quick overview. Thanks for laughing. Jesus is speaking specifically to Peter here. He says, I will give you, Peter, the keys of the kingdom of heaven. So this is a special role of Peter's in church history. And when we read the book of Acts, which recounts the birth of the church at Pentecost and its earliest days when people began following Jesus after his ascension, we do see Peter as having a special role. Specifically, Peter interpreted what was happening to the crowds at Pentecost, and he preached the gospel to them, which Acts 2 tells us resulted in 3,000 people being baptized that very day. Not bad. And later in Acts chapter 8 and also Acts 10, when the Holy Spirit fell on the Sumerians and the Gentiles, Peter was the key leader interpreting how this could be. And he said, can anyone withhold water for baptizing these people who have received the Holy Spirit just as we have? Peter was instrumental in opening the kingdom, so to speak, to both Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus in the foundational days of the church. He acted with both authority and responsibility in a unique way in redemption history. But, This binding and loosing that Jesus talks about here, this responsibility and authority given to Peter in Matthew 16, is also given to the whole church, the whole fellowship of God's people, just a few chapters later. In Matthew 18, verse 18, Jesus says to all of his disciples, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. 
Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So we see that not only do the church's leaders have a special role to play, but all of God's people carry some level of both authority and responsibility in partnership with God in his work in the world. Specifically in the context of Matthew 18, although it's certainly not limited to this, one place we see God working mightily is through our prayers. What that means, brothers and sisters, is that your prayers are powerful. Our Lord has chosen to display his power through you and through your ministry of intercession, your priestly ministry of prayer for the world. Somehow when we pray, though we don't understand this exactly, somehow when we pray, God is binding things up and setting them loose on earth and in heaven. Now if I'm being honest, the ministry of prayer still feels kind of unglamorous. You know, I'd rather preach like Peter and baptize 3,000 people afterwards. But prayer is a very important discipline because it clearly demonstrates this idea that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And yet, somehow, mysteriously, that power is released into the world through us, through that unglamorous, small, hidden work of prayer. I hope you feel empowered by this. And I have some homework for you. We've got a new Alpha course coming up in about three weeks, which is just one way that we seek to open the doors of the kingdom to anyone and everyone in Greenville through inviting our friends and neighbors to have a conversation about faith. But this year, instead of invite cards with the dates and information about Alpha, we've prepared prayer cards for you to take home. They look like this. You might have gotten one on your way in, but if you didn't, there are a whole bunch in the foyers. And um, it actually doesn't say anything about Alpha on the card specifically because this is bigger than Alpha. This is about the ministry of the church all year long. So what I'd love for you to do is take one of these cards and ask the Lord for three names, three people that he's calling you to pray for over the next month, to pray that God's kingdom would come in their lives as it is in heaven. Maybe they're people that you plan or hope to invite to Alpha, but maybe not. But I challenge you to write these names down and to keep this card in a place where you're gonna see it every day and pray for those people, even if it's just five minutes a day. If you're not sure what words to use, there is a little prayer on the back just to get you started, but otherwise pray as the Lord leads you. And as you pray, trust that he will work through your prayers. You may not see it, you may not feel it, you may not get to determine the timeline or the exact impact of your prayers, but God has promised in his word that your prayers are an important part of how he will build his church, that the gates of death will not prevail against. Amen? Let me pray for us. Oh Lord, we do thank you for including us in your great redemptive work, both as recipients and agents. And we confess again this morning that this starts and ends with our profession of faith that you are the Christ. And I pray that again this morning you would convert us to this, 
that you would help us to understand the cost of what it means to call you our Lord and to follow you. And I pray your great blessing and your anointing over the prayers of this church this month. Would you surprise us, O Lord? We pray, amen.